This is episode 73 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. So it's been a tough week this week. Uh, for example, my node broke yet again uh, because I need to get it to move to its own server rather than trying to get it to share CPU and memory with a badly misbehaving Java app. If you want to know more details about that, listen to last week's grumpy old Ben's where I ranted sufficiently about it. That's not the only thing going on, uh, but no, I'm not going to go into all of my personal problems. You're not here for that. Suffice it to say, Life hasn't calmed down here since the last time that I sent out the sad puppy. Uh, However, I have made you a commitment to bring you tech news angrily. Uh, Given where my head's at, I am going to have to apologize in advance if the tech news is too angry or not angry enough or whatever the anger level needs to be to fit your style. Actually, you know, come to think of it, I take that back. I make no apologies here. This is my show, not yours. You will take the anger level that I give you, and you will like it. From the completely automated user count reduction department, I've got some bad news for CAPTCHAs. Or good news, I suppose, if you're one of the approximately everybody who hates them. A team of researchers at UC Irvine took on the task of studying how well CAPTCHAs actually work to tell humans from bots. The researchers observed that 60% of the 200 most visited websites on the internet use CAPTCHA. So the researchers put up a site with various types of CAPTCHAs and invited a few thousand people of various demographic groups to solve them. Then they tried the same thing with a number of bots published in, uh, with either source code published in journals claiming to be able to defeat CAPTCHA or some bots the researchers wrote themselves. For the distorted text CAPTCHAs, the average human took 9 to 15 seconds to identify what the CAPTCHA was trying to say, with an accuracy of between 50% and 84%. Bots, on the other hand, were able to identify the distorted text CAPTCHAs pretty much universally in under one second, with a 99.8% accuracy. Uh, This trend of the bots being far superior to humans continued across all CAPTCHA types, with bots taking significantly less time to solve than humans in almost every case and with much higher accuracy in every case than their human counterparts. The only outlier of this was the high security version of the reCAPTCHA. reCAPTCHA has the low security and high security. The low security is just click I'm not a bot and bots have figured out how to waggle their mouse to the point where they can just click that. But the high security is the one that wants you to identify all pictures of an honest politician. You're like, there's nowhere to click. This In this one, the bots, while still being more accurate than people, took about 17 seconds to get through the pages and pages of sailboat and stoplight pictures, as compared to the human average of 18 seconds, which is still longer. Although if I had to guess, I'd personally attribute that more to the glacially slow load times for pages calling out to the reCAPTCHA APIs over and over and over again than to the speed of a bot. Page load times are not addressed in the study. Being a study out of academia, they also took into account participants' race, gender, and other demographics. The only demographic that seemed to matter expectedly was age, with very few young or with very young people taking slightly longer to solve, probably on account of they hadn't seen as many sailboats in their lives. 
One last interesting statistic I pulled from the study was the abandonment rate. People who started out trying to solve the CAPTCHAs but never continued on to the site. Not surprising considering that even reCAPTCHA, the most effective style tested, effective in that it wasted most of the researchers' bots' time, is still wasting more human time than bot time. More than a third of a minute in most cases. In a world where the average internet user's attention span is unscientifically about four to six seconds, 18 seconds is a lifetime. The paper found that approximately 30% of the people presented with CAPTCHAs in this study just walked away and found something more interesting to do than jump through idiotic hoops for some webmaster's perverse enjoyment. I wonder how most of those site owners would feel if they knew that by putting up a CAPTCHA, they're immediately turning away 30% of potential human users. Of course, this being the internet, don't expect site operators to be dissuaded from using CAPTCHAs by the mere fact that they have become completely worthless at their stated goal. The secondary goal of CAPTCHAs, frustrating users to the point of giving up on the site and thus saving both network traffic and IT support tickets, is still served. After all, as any frontline help desk worker can tell you, automated botnets create a lot fewer support headaches than moronic users who've lost their password for the fifth time this week. From the Kill All Humans department... The Savy Meal Bot, powered by ChatGPT 3.5, has uh, been released and immediately corrected. Uh, users enter the foods that they have left over in this bot. This, uh, why didn't I write down the, I didn't write down the name of the supermarket chain, of course, but it was in New Zealand. A supermarket chain was releasing the Savy Meal Bot. Users enter whatever foods they have left over in their fridge. The bot immediately replies with recipes that can use those. The idea is to save on food, to save on cost when you're grocery shopping, to make better use of what's in your pantry. Uh, neat idea. But ChatGPT, of course, always has its own ideas that don't necessarily agree with what the people want to do, like making foods edible. For example, some of the things that this thing suggested when... Uh, enterprising users decided to use the bot and put in whatever they found in their pantry. The chat GPT powered savvy bot suggested Oreo vegetable stir fry, uh, ant poison and glue sandwiches, fresh breath mocktail, including bleach, uh, bleach infused rice surprise, turpentine flavored red French toast, and an aromatic water mix, which it, the uh, chat GPT said was the perfect non-alcoholic beverage to quench your thirst and refresh your senses. Serve chilled and enjoy the refreshing fragrance. The ingredients listed in the aromatic water mix included uh, bleach and ammonia, which produce chlorine gas. So I guess the uh, refreshing fragrance, quenching your thirst and refreshing your senses involves vomiting and filling your lungs with blood. That's what's refreshing to some bots. This is a standard generative large language model. Uh, you tell the bot what you have, you get the suggestions. Uh, in order to get some of these really bad suggestions, you need to tell the bot about your non-food household items. Most people don't have chlorine bleach in their fridge or, or wouldn't add it if they're trying to make things interesting or to make real food. It merely pairs things together that the data set has often seen pair together. And it, it does highlight one thing about the... ChatGPT's LLM, that it doesn't seem to understand the concept of not. There are thousands of articles on the internet out there that say do not, under any circumstances, pair ammonia and bleach. And the fact that ammonia and bleach both appear in the same sentence 
the model has ammonia and bleach very close together and is obviously suggesting them together. According to a spokesperson for the supermarket, they are disappointed to see that, quote, a small minority of users have tried to use the tool inappropriately and not for its intended purpose, and uh, pointed out that you must use your own judgment before relying on or making any recipe produced by the Savy Meal Bot. You must use your own judgment. That's great advice, and I would recommend it myself, but what supermarket are you working for? You know people don't use judgment anymore. Okay, well, after the story, there was an update from Business Insider saying, Entering hazardous items into the CV meal bot now brings up an error message about invalid ingredients. So congratulations. The supermarket chain has the yoke in place. Now they are finally putting the limits on the large language model that otherwise would say exactly what people on the internet are thinking and doing. And we can't have that still though, as business insider points out after the update, they are accepting non-hazardous ingredients and pointed out that uh, the Savvy Meal Bot, even after the update, suggested some toothpaste beef pasta. From the No Humans Needed Department, an interesting report came out during Black Hat from security firm Stack Identity on the makeup of cloud identities being used in a Microsoft ecoservices, Microsoft, microservices ecosystem. Uh, by the way, I have to warn you, this is going to be a fairly technical article um, I, to the point where I didn't understand all of it myself. But, you know, I don't have to warn you. You'll just figure it out on your own. An identity in this context is a username and password or other authentication token, along with a set of permissions, credentials, and other identifying metadata, giving access to some set of services in the cloud. 15 years ago, nearly every online identity was attached to a human actor, administrators, developers, third-party partners, contractors, and of course, end users. The human, uh, the human accesses user-facing services, and then any secondary services at the time were accessed using the human's identity on that human's behalf. But the rise of microservices architecture has shifted the role of humans, and now machines talk to machines, services to services far more often. Nowadays, it is common for a large web of disparate cloud services to all be connected to each other independent of any human interaction. Data stores, API calls, cloud workflows, status queries, ping updates, etc., etc. And even when a system operates to fill a human's request, only often the frontline service knows who the request is for, and all the rest only know that they're talking to the bot associated with the front-end service. How do the machines manage this huge web of trust in absence of human interaction, you may ask? Well, I did anyway. There are microservices that exist to create new cloud identities for other microservices to access still, or to access still other microservices. So we're getting quickly to the point where these things don't need humans at all. They know how to create their own identities. Stack Identities paper now estimates that only about 4% of all enterprise cloud identities are tied to a human. That including all administrators, all developers, all end users, only about 4%, 96%. So modern cloud systems have a lot more identities than you'd think, and a lot more, as it turns out, than even the modern identity management tools will show you. The goal of Stack Identity's efforts was to find out more about the other 96% of these identities. This is important from a security perspective because humans are not. These credentials can be used and are used every day to breach an organization's security measures. The scariest statistic from the Stack Identity analysis is what they call over-permissioned identities. 
Among other things, they found 76% of all identities in the cloud, most of which are bots, have right permissions. Now, sure, a lot of those need right permissions, but do all of them? 28% of them have permission management permissions, which is a lot harder sell to say that a bot needs it, but more than a quarter have the ability to manage permissions of other identities. 5% of all identities, uh, far more, even more than the number of humans in there, so obviously a lot of these are bots, 5% of all identities have admin pr permission to their systems. And this is the scariest one of all, as far as I'm concerned, 16% have privilege escalation permission, which is really just an admin permission with an extra step. If you're not an admin, but you have the ability to make yourself an admin, you're an admin. That's more than one in five all online identities, which if breached can immediately result in the complete exfiltration and destruction of your entire online system. Leveraging a combination of these over-permissioned accounts, Stack Identity says, can create, quote, weaponized access pathways into your cloud infrastructure. Stack Identity calls these toxic combinations of over-permissioned accounts. Uh, they call them shadow access and says that they are, quote, invisible to modern IAM tools. IAM stands for Identity Access Management, and yes, I did have to look up the acronym. So this is the part where not being currently employed by a cloud security firm I started to get a little bit lost in the jargon, if I'm honest, but the paper does call out some pretty compelling examples of how, and this is used badly. For example, the 2022 LastPass breach was called out as an example, wherein hackers accessed and stole, stole the entire LastPass database by leveraging a chain of bot identities that had unused admin permissions. The attackers got in initially through a social engineering attack, which got them through the front firewall, then accessed a misconfigured bot account, which then allowed them to access other accounts with more and more pr privileges, leading to the ultimate goal of copying the entire encrypted user data database. According to Stack Identity, 31% of cloud identities have these kind of toxic access combinations available, which makes them a potential, which makes almost a third of all identities in the cloud a potential stepping stone to privilege escalation. In the show notes, I've linked the full 17 page report, which is fascinating and scary if you're into online security. The full report is dense with more statistics and even has a section on best practices, which companies don't follow nearly often enough, despite how obvious most of the practices are. Things like if a bot doesn't need a permission, maybe don't let it have that permission. And if you're just an end user, which uh, many of you probably are, you might ask how any of this affects you. Well, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you already know how. Every time one of these super smart security guys screws up, more of your personal data gets leaked to the dark web. Your social media account gets hacked. Your online password database gets stolen. Your name and social security number get used to open a line of credit somewhere. Your kids' pictures get used as part of someone's online phishing scam. And your credit card gets used to buy two tanks of gas and a pair of shoes somewhere in New Jersey. As an end user, the way to protect yourself is exactly the same advice as for security professionals. Limit the number of accounts you create. Limit the permission levels of those accounts. Think hard before signing up for the 15th new online account this week. Think even harder before giving them any data or information that they don't absolutely require in order to give you the service that you're asking for. The online world is full of people asking for your trust, but far fewer than the number of people asking, far fewer of them are worthy of it. The internet is a wondrous thing. 
It gives us instant access to most of the world's people and most of the world's information. But using it also gives them instant access to you. Going online means learning to protect yourself because the companies won't do it for you. They have their hands full just trying to protect their own asses. From the Culture for a Price Department, the Internet Archive is, yet again, facing legal trouble for their blatant and willful acts of brazenly trying to preserve our shared culture for future generations. At issue is the Archive's Great 78 Project. From Archive.org's page, the Great 78 Project is a community project for the preservation, research, and discovery of 78 RPM records. Most 78 RPM records were made of brittle shellac and are very fragile. The archive estimates that around 3 million sides were made available in the first half of the 20th century, all of which will disappear if not archived somewhere. The archive invites any collectors who have some 78s to donate them to the archive where they will be digitized, where, where the archive.org will digitize the audio recorded therein and store the 78s using whatever long-term preservation methods they think are appropriate. The problem is that most of these works are still under copyright. Uh, 78s we stopped using in 1954. And most of the 78s ever created are still under copyright. Copyright laws in the US and around the world are hideously complex, but one thing they all have in common is that the terms are too damn long. The oldest copyright works still copyrighted today, the oldest works were made in 1928 in the United States. 95 years ago, a lifetime. No, actually way more than a lifetime. Four generations of humans whose recordings, books, art, music, our culture is all locked up by somebody who the law says gets control over whether or not people can look at, listen to, or even think about that song, that story, whatever. Usually that someone is a corporation. The entire digital age, by the way, is still under copyright. Not one software program, not one digital recording, live stream or tweet has ever entered the public domain unless the original author willed it to. Actually, not the original author, wh whoever owns the rights to it, which hopefully is, anyway. This, the, this is the entire digital age going all the way back to the 1960s when computers started being a thing. Anyway, why is this important? Well, humans are social animals. An inherent part of our existence is seeking out and interacting with other humans and sharing our thoughts, ideas, and expression. This codex of shared ideas and knowledge is called culture. It is absolutely critical for the proper function of the human psyche to be part of a culture and to be able to use it. Copyrights are a legal construct that allows someone to say, hey, this part of your shared culture, it belongs to me. Pay me money in order to experience that culture. And if you don't pay, people with guns will show up at your house and take your freedom away. It's a very capitalist concept, but the idea that our thoughts and experiences could be bought and sold like commodities infringes on natural rights in ways that should give even the most ardent libertarian or ANCAP some pause. Copyright in the United States has its roots in Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, the Copyright Clause, it's called. Congress shall have the power, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. That for limited times part is the only reason that copyrights ever expire at all. But the Constitution never said how much time, 
and corporate lobbyists have pushed it up to the point where a hit movie made today will not be available to the public domain until 2143. And to promote progress, that's the other line in there, that the framers of the Constitution, they wanted to create a free market incentive for people to create new creative works because they reasoned that, hey, adding more creative works to our culture would work for the benefit of all people. But what we have today doesn't benefit all citizens and it doesn't promote progress. It benefits copyright holders who, more often than not, aren't even real people. They're corporations, a legal entity that has all the benefits of being a person under a law, but very few of the disadvantages. Like, for example, you can't throw a corporation in prison when it breaks the law and it will never die of old age, a, by which, by the way, side note, dying of old age, a critical and necessary backstop against evil. When in history, whenever a person has gained so much power that nobody can stop their crimes, be they a dictator or whatever, no matter how powerful and tyrannical they get, no matter how forceful the regime is, no matter how much they crush the people underneath them, time will always catch up and eventually end the spree of whatever they're doing because people die. Not so with corporations. And as an aside, this is why any technology that promises immortality should scare the crap out of you because they won't give that technology to us lowly serfs, you know, only to the super wealthy people who want to stay super wealthy forever. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. The way humans make new creative works is to start from some aspect of our shared culture, a baseline that the audience can relate to before adding the new part of whatever you made. This process of remixing, of creating new works based on things you know, is subverted under restrictive copyright because our culture has been subdivided and partitioned into individual fiefdoms owned by corporations. Under today's copyright law, in order to create a work without infringing, you must acquire a license for each and every piece of our shared culture that you built on from the last hundred years. That, by the way, is assuming that you can find the copyright holder at all. And that even is also assuming that you can identify which bits of culture you built on which itself is often next to impossible as it all mixes inside of our brains. The only reason anything can get created today at all is because the fullest extent of copyright law is almost never enforced. And because fair use is an affirmative defense against copyright infringement. By the way, an affirmative defense means that in order to claim fair use in court, you first have to plead guilty to copyright infringement and say, oh, but it's okay. And then hope that they find that, yeah, it's okay because fair use. If the fair use argument doesn't go your way, you've still pled guilty, meaning that trying to use fair use in court always carries some legal risk. The only option that has no legal risk at all is to make something totally new that no one has ever conceived before. In that case, the risk you'll create something nobody, or the risk, the real risk, is that you'll create something nobody can relate to, like atonal music or a banana taped to a wall. This also happens to be at the root of the big AI copyright controversies going on today. Computers, generative AI included, are relatively immune to the boiling frog phenomenon that affects humans. They have no cognitive dissonance, so they can't rationalize away a change just because it occurs only in small increments. Well, we've always done it this way doesn't work when a computer has never done it before in any way. In order to model, model a real world thing in a computer, the system has to understand that thing, which then with sometimes disturbing clarity, the computer will then spit out the thing back at you. For example, what happens when you train a generative AI on the Twitter firehose? 
If you live in an information bubble and have an unreasonably narrow view of what's going on in Twitter, you might be really surprised to learn when you're or to see when your generative AI starts saying vulgar or politically incorrect things, because that's what people say online, but you just blocked them all. We've now created generative AI using language models that create new content exactly the same way people do. They absorb a corpus of human culture and then remix and spin the relevant parts into something that is based on previous works, but ultimately still original. This is exactly what humans do when we create new things. And by the strictest reading, yes, it infringes copyright. Computers just do it faster and in higher volume, which is why AI companies are getting sued left and right for effectively creating the same remix machine that YouTube did. YouTube just used people to do it. Okay. Enough with the philosophical rants. This is supposed to be a news show. The news regarding Internet Archive 78 project is that, surprise, surprise, they're being sued. An industry group consi consisting of several record labels, including Sony Music, UMG, Capitol Records, Concord, CMGI, and Arista, filed complaint last week alleging that the Internet Archive is infringing on 2,749 separate sound recording copyrights and claiming damages of $412 million. Those damages, by the way, are statutory. I mean, even in the fuzzy math bubble of recording contracts, I don't think they can honestly believe that consumers would give them collectively half a billion dollars on the free market for some 70-year-old 78 RPM shellac, but that's what they're asking. The complaint goes on to list dozens of articles whose work was infringed, including Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, Miles Davis, and Louis Armstrong. All of those people are dead which means that the only entities with any standing, of course, are the undead pseudo-person corporations who intend to continue rent-seeking on these works in perpetuity. The recording companies go on to argue that songs face no danger of being lost, forgotten, or destroyed because the companies make them available through streaming and other music services. While that might arguably be true of Frank Sinatra's works, I am quite certain that there are a few lesser-known artists whose recordings will be lost to time should the complaint seek, succeed in shutting this project down. But even that misses the, the point entirely. For one, I'm not convinced that something is truly available when it's locked behind the paywall of a digital subscription service. But even more importantly, data is lost all the time. Companies go out of business. I admit it's hard to imagine Sony Music or UMG closing up shop no matter how much I want that to happen. But what about smaller labels? That happens all the time. They go out. Also, data centers are hit by natural disaster. Or if you don't want a natural disaster, how about ransomware? Or a clumsy dude named Ben tripping over the wrong power cord? The specifics don't matter that much. What matters is that important data must have backups. Our collective culture is so important too important to store it all in one place, too important to let one company be the only possible source. For all kinds of reasons, I support the Internet Archive's extremely ambitious goal of archiving our entire culture. Still, in the end, even archive.org is centralized, which might not be enough. So as far as I'm concerned, the only truly persistent way to keep a culture alive is to distribute it to the people who are part of that culture. I want to send out some seriously angry thanks to Oystein Berge, Harry and Harry Pilgrim for their big $50 donations to Angry Tech News and to Baron Spud the Mighty, Progo, Steve Edwards and Curtis Peterson for their continued monthly support. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors. We don't play ads and we don't charge you to listen, but we're funded by your donations. 
If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's 50 bucks, 100 bucks, or the cost of an ER visit after eating that ammonia bleach pasta surprise. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay